0: As we continue in our series, The Journey, today we're talking about how the journey points to Jesus. My hope is that as we look at some of Israel's beginning, the early story of the people of God, that we will see all over the place the reality that Jesus was already preparing his people to meet him. We're gonna look at some words from the prophet Isaiah and how Isaiah was pointing to a future when God would come and sacrifice for his people. And we're gonna end our time talking about five reasons that Jesus is the point, five reasons that Jesus is the exclamation point to your life. And my hope and my desire is whether it's for the very first time or the 500th time, that you surrender your life to God, that you trust him, believing that he is so good that he loves you and that he has died and risen for you. But as we begin, I want to... I wanna open with some lines from a book that I'm reading right now. It's called The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass. And it's his autobiography of his story of being a slave born in Maryland and then escaping and gaining his freedom. He becomes one of the most influential voices in the abolitionist movement. People were amazed at his skill in speaking and writing and God used him in a powerful way to bring freedom to this land. But I want to open with a few of his words and they might be difficult for some of us to hear. These are the words from Frederick Douglass as he shares in his book about the early years as he was a kid and as he was a slave. Hear these words. I have no accurate knowledge of my age. Never having seen any authentic record containing it, by far the largest part of the slaves know as little of their ages as horses know of theirs. And it is the wish of most masters within my knowledge to keep their slaves thus ignorant. I do not remember to have ever met a slave who could tell of his birthday. The white children could tell their ages. I could not tell why I ought to be deprived of the same privilege. My mother and I were separated when I was but an infant, before I knew her as my mother. It is a common practice in the part of Maryland from which I ran away to part children from their mothers at a very early age. Frequently, before the child has reached its 12th month, its mother is taken from it and hired out on some farm a considerable distance off, and the child is placed under the care of an old woman too old for field labor. For what this separation is done, I do not know, unless it be to hinder the development of the child's affection towards its mother and to blunt and destroy the natural affection of the mother for the child. This is the inevitable result. My mother was hired by a Mr. Stewart who lived 12 miles from my home. She made her journeys to see me in the night, traveling the whole distance on foot after the performance of her her day's work. I do not recollect ever seeing my mother by the light of day. She was with me in the night. She would lie down with me and get me to sleep. But long before I waked, she was gone. What an unimaginable story. Frederick Douglass, not knowing his birthday later in his life, claimed that his birthday was February 14th, 1818. When he was about six years old, he was sent off to work in Baltimore. At the age of 12, he began to learn to read and write. And one, one of the first things he did is he gathered other slaves close to him and he taught them based on the New Testament, utilizing the New Testament, he taught them how to read and write. Well, some white slave owners heard about this and broke up that group that was learning together. And instead, Frederick Douglass was sent Back to Maryland, to the plantation of a man named Edward Covey. And Edward Covey was famous for, as Frederick Douglass would say, breaking the body and the spirit and the mind of slaves. In fact, Frederick Douglass tells in his own words what it was like to be beaten and abused constantly. Well, on September 3rd, 1838, Frederick Douglass experienced the most terrifying and courageous 24 hours of his life. When he chose to escape slavery, he made it all the way to Philadelphia. And a number of years later, in the year 1845, he wrote his autobiography. And people were absolutely amazed. In fact, many of the white slave owners believed there was no way that such profound words and such profound writings could come from a slave. Because you see, in their mind, slaves weren't made in the image of God. They were less than. But God, as we know since the beginning of time, has created all people to be free. Has created all people to know him and to experience a relationship with him. I share these words with you as we are reminded of our nation's original sin as we are reminded of this evil to, to make it personal because at the same time, there is in the backdrop of the Old Testament, a story of slavery. That there is a people of God, the Israelites, who were enslaved for over 400 years. And in our passage in Exodus chapter 1, their story sounds similar. Their story is recounted. And I want you to hear the emotion behind these words in Exodus chapter 1 beginning in verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them. They will, become, or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and ultimately leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built Python and Ramses and store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Listen how bad it got. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pu'ah, he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, Let her live. You see, this is the story. This is the narrative. This is the pain and the slavery and the bondage that the Israelites are experiencing. But God has something to say about it but God is about to intervene. In Exodus chapter three, verse seven, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. You see, God is always advocating for the marginalized, always advocating for those that find themselves in any kind of bondage. God sees you, he sees them, he knows their stories and he is deeply concerned about their, suffering. He has not turned a blind eye to it, but he is very much engaged in their story. And then in verse 10, he commissions Moses, so now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Well, Moses approaches Pharaoh and begins to give him multiple opportunities to free the people of God. But Pharaoh... Like the slave owners said, absolutely not. But God, who is more powerful, sent plagues and signs and wonders to make it clear that the gods that the Egyptians worship are nothing, but that the Lord Almighty, Yahweh, God, is all powerful. On the final night before they are led out of their slavery, In Deuteronomy chapter 16, it's recorded again what they did. They observed the month of Aviv and celebrated the Passover of the Lord your God. Because in the month of Aviv, he brought you out of Egypt by night. That he commanded his people, what I want you to do is I want you to sacrifice a lamb. A lamb without defect. And I want you to paint the blood over the doorposts of your house. And it will be a symbol of the fact that you are followers of me, that you have trusted me with your life. And the angel of the Lord will pass over those houses and instead bring death to the Egyptians. See, after this Passover celebration, God frees his people and and the Red Sea is parted and man is provided from heaven and then God gives some commands to his people. That it is as his people are leaving a land of bondage, a lifestyle of slavery, he is needing to redefine for them what it means to be in a relationship with God and what it means to be in relationships with others, that this holy God has standards that he desires his people to upkeep. And so in Exodus chapter 20, he gives his people 10 commandments. And by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, there are 613 commandments. But the first four commandments are directly connected to our relationship with God. First one is this You shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall have no idols. Number three, do not misuse my name. And number four, remember the Sabbath. And already as you read those, we've broken those today, that we continue to break those commandments. The first commandment, that we shall have no other gods before me. We commit that sin all the time where we put people or possessions or things or experiences in the place of God in our lives. And after the giving of these Four commands of our relationship with Him. God gives six commands for our relationships with others. Number five, He says, "Honor your parents." Do we have any students in the house? Cl- clue in. Here we go. He says, "Honor your parents." And as I was reading this, I just it just stood out to me for the first time. Commandment number six, right after it says, "Honor your parents." Commandment number six is, "Do not murder." Now I don't know if this is what He's saying, but maybe He's like, maybe He's like, "Hey kiddos, kiddos, kids, kids." One of the ways you honor your parents is you don't kill them, right? Like maybe that's what he's trying to say here. He's saying, look, that's how we can honor our parents. Don't kill them. So that's kind of the bare minimum. Number seven, do not commit adultery. Number eight, do not steal. Number nine, do not lie. And number 10, do not covet and be jealous for other people's things. As you and I read this list, I can think of six of them I've committed in the last hour. I mean, as we look at this list, it's clear that you and I can't live up on our own to the standard that God has set. And so what he establishes in the Old Testament, in Israel's beginning, what he establishes is a system, is a way in which they can continue in this relationship with God where he is forgiving their sins, where they can maintain that connection with him. My hope and desire is that as we look at it today, that you will see it not just as a commandment that he gave his people in the Old Testament, but as a way of dropping hints and clues of what would ultimately come in that it points to Jesus. Uh, For me, I remember as a kid, learning about the Cadillac car. I remember like just hearing people talk about a Cadillac, we can never afford it, but a Cadillac was like a really, really great car, right? And as I was thinking about this, I was trying to figure out, okay, what's a way for us to remember the sacrificial system? What's a way for us to remember kind of this structure that God set up for dealing with his people? And as I was researching it, let's throw that up there real quick. I discovered that there's sort of Cadillac. And so remember the Cadillac, right? Cadillac is like a great way of connect, of, you know, driving a car. The Cadillac was like the great way of connecting with God in that day. Okay. So it's like a numeric or a, a, an acronym device for you to kind of remember what we're talking about. But God established a sacrificial system in order to deal with the sin of His. People, Let's look in Leviticus chapter five, verse 13. Leviticus 5.13 says this. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them for any of these sins they have committed. And so God establishes a sacrificial system to deal with, to bring forgiveness and atonement. But here's what you need to know. The kind of forgiveness and atonement that this system brought, because it was by very nature humans... Offering their own animal sacrifices. It was a way of passing over or covering over sin. It was not the way in which God would defeat sin. You see, his covering and passing over sin was temporary, but it would point to a day when God would ultimately defeat sin once and for all. Why did God establish this kind of system before we break it apart and look into it? Why did he establish it? I want to look at just three reasons real quick. Number one is this. God wanted to make it crystal clear to all of us that sin equals death. That every time sin equals death, sin is not just a regrettable decision. It's not just a mistake. It's not just that thing that didn't get posted and you're so thankful about and only you and a few friends know. And you guys made like a blood promise and said, we're not going to tell anybody. That's not... That's not what sin does. Ultimately, sin brings death. Sin brings biological death. It brings physical death. It brings emotional death. It brings cosmological, spiritual death. It brings relational death. That is what sin does. And so when our sin brings death and separates us from God, his desire is that we would be back with him. And so something has to give. There has to be some kind of price paid for that sin to take it seriously. And you and I, we want God to take sin seriously. When other people sin against us, we want him to take that very seriously. We don't love when he takes our own sin seriously. But sin does bring death. Number two, God did this because he wanted to maintain not a religion, but he wanted to maintain a relationship with his people. And this system allowed a maintenance of that relationship. And then number three, Galatians 3.24, Paul says that the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. The third reason that the system was established was so that it would guard us, it would protect the people of God, and ultimately it would prepare them and point them to a day when God would defeat sin once and for all in Christ so here's how the sacrificial system works. Find me in Exodus chapter 25, verse eight and nine. It says this, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Remember that word, I will dwell among them. That is God's heart revealed. He desires to dwell with his people. Verse nine make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And so what God lays out in the Old Testament is what this tabernacle, what this tent structure, what this meeting place, this dwelling place of his would look like so that he could be in relationship with his people. So let me talk about what those different components were. So let's go back to the chart. So we have the tabernacle and it serves to accomplish this sacrificial system to connect people with their god right the very first thing you notice in the tabernacle is what was called the ark and the ark was literally this like giant container that stood on four poles it never touched the ground and it was believed that the 10 commandments that they resided inside of there and it was believed that the ark was the holy of holies that was the closest that you could come to god and one of the first things you would notice is right, right in front of the ark was a giant curtain, a two to three inch thick, ornate, beautiful curtain that would be a divider between the people, the unholy, sinful, broken people and holy, blameless, perfect God. Once a year, the high priests would come and they would, they would open up that curtain And they would present their sacrifices for their own sin and for the sin of the people. It was such a dangerous task that when the high priest would go in, they would tie a rope around his ankle and his buddies would be standing outside holding the rope. And if if they were in there, if the high priest was in there too long, it was believed that he had not confessed his sins. And so being in the very presence of a holy God killed him. And so they would pull their high priest out. Well, right past the Ark and the curtain, the next thing you would notice is a table. And there was a table, which is so fitting for Communion Sunday. There was a table with some bread on it. And this was called the table of the bread of presence. And it was a reminder to the Israelites that God had provided for his people, that he had provided the manna, that he had taken care of them, that Yahweh was with them, that he was here, and that he ultimately loved them. Right next to the table was the lampstand, and and the lampstand lit up the entire tabernacle, making all of the elements visible. But it also was a reminder that God is light, that God was the one who brought light into the world. Right after the lampstand, once you step right outside of the tabernacle, was the altar, And on the altar is where the sacrifices were made. I want to show you Exodus chapter 29, just verse 38. This is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day, two lambs a year old. They were constantly offering sacrifices to cover over, to pass over their sin. And then right outside of the altar is the courtyard. And that's the gathering place where as you step into the courtyard and as you prepare to enter into the presence of God, you are aware of your own sin and your own brokenness and your desperate need for him. But you see there's an inherent problem within this system, and it's recorded in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. The writer of Hebrews says the problem with this system is really that it wasn't supposed to be all-consuming in and of itself. It wasn't God's final part of his story. It was pointing to a reality, pointing to a truth that when Christ showed up, he would take away sin once and for all. He would absolutely deal with it. And this practice had to be repeated of sacrifices over and over and over again. And it was as if there was this longing within the people of God for more. This longing within the people of God for him to intervene in a way similar to what he had done in their redemption from Egypt. That God would do something that they could not do themselves Fast forward a number of years, 500 years before Jesus shows up on the scene, the prophet Isaiah, he hints at this. He hints at the fact that God is about to do something miraculous when he says in Isaiah chapter 53, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse seven, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a the sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Isaiah is saying there is a day coming when God is going to make things right. When all the sin, all the disobedience in us is going to be put on an ultimate sacrifice, on a perfect forever sacrifice. What I wanna do with our few minutes that we have together is I wanna look at, at some passages in the New Testament that use some of this narrative, some of this language from the Old Testament to say, you guys, wake up, Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is what we were talking about. Jesus is what all those things in the past were ultimately pointing to, that Jesus is the point. Because friends, the climax of God's story was not the giving of his law. The climax of God's story is the giving of his son. Think about that for a second. The climax of God's story was not the giving of his law and them continuing to do sacrifice over and over. The climax of God's story, the exclamation point to God's story is when he sent his son to be the perfect sacrifice as we are about to see. Let me walk through five reasons that Jesus is the point. Number one is this. Jesus tabernacled with us, right? That tabernacle in the Old Testament was God's way of dwelling with his people. Well, Jesus actually tabernacles with us in John chapter 1, 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Literally, he made his tabernacle among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and grace. And truth. You see, friends, the major distinction between the gospel, the story of Jesus, the true historical story of Jesus Christ dying on a cross and rising from the dead, the difference between that story and every other major religion is that every other major religion says you've got to climb a ladder. And once you climb a ladder, God will accept you, God will love you. Maybe if you do enough things, God will think you're acceptable. But in John 1:14, as John opens the pages of his gospel of the story of Jesus, he says, "You need to understand that God, in a very physical, real way, chose to tabernacle with us. He, he chose to come down to planet Earth." I want you to think about this concept for a second. That Jesus Christ, He left heaven with the Father to be on Earth with you. That Jesus left heaven with the Father so that he could be on earth with you. What does that say about his immense great love for you? Have you ever been in the presence of somebody that you just didn't feel worthy to be around? I remember this, how I felt when I first met Sarah, my wife. Thankfully, we're married now, but when I first met her, I remember thinking, this girl is way out of my league. There is no way I should even be close to her right now. And I remember as we were talking, I got the courage to ask her out on a date and we went on our very first date. And I remember stressing and, and being anxious about what are we going to do? Where am I going to take her? And I remember doing some research and, and this is so out of my character, but for some reason I was like, I really want to impress her. And so I made a decision that for our first date, we were going to go to an art museum. Okay. Now I know some of you maybe are into the art museum. I don't get it. Okay. I don't get it. But I was like, I'm going to the art museum because maybe she'll think I'm really great. And so we pull up, we pull up to the LACMA uh, and, and we're, we're, I remember kind of circling to try to find a parking spot. And all of a sudden this amazing parking spot opens up right in front of the LACMA, which I'm like, this is a sign from God almighty that this is the woman I'm going to marry. Right? So I park, I park my car and I go up to the little toll booth and, or the, the little coin thing or whatever. And I'm dropping coins inside. And then we walk inside and and, and we're inside the LACMA and we're looking at all this art. And I know this is gonna sound like so naive and and stupid of me, but I I remember looking at this art and being like, I feel like I could do this. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like as I'm looking at this art, I feel like I could recreate this stuff, but it's worth billions of dollars. I don't get it. And so anyways, we're kind of looking around. I'm trying to impress Sarah. And and all of a sudden we leave the LACMA because we've got our dinner reservations and the sun is setting and we walk outside. And as we're walking outside, I can't find my car. And I start doing laps around the LACMA trying to find the car. I can't find it. And I'm stressing out and my palms are sweating. I'm like, this is the worst date ever. And and I go up to the info booth and I say, hey, is uh, I thought I parked my car right here, but I don't see it. And he was like, Oh man, he's like, bro, they towed your car. Like they towed your car. And he's like, he's like, here's the thing, man, this happens all the time. But where they towed your car is like, it's, it's, it's in a bad area. It's, it's right in kind of the center where like the Crips and the, and the bloods like kind of meet is like right where they towed your car. And I remember being like, this is insane. And so... He's like, you gotta get in a taxi. Is before Uber and Lyft. He's like, you gotta get in a taxi and you gotta go, man. And so I jump in the taxi with Sarah. And I mean, we're in, we're in a taxi right now, driving around on our first date. And, and I'm talking with the taxi driver, sharing with him about this experience. He's like, oh yeah, I take people down there all the time. He's like, man, it is. it can be really, really dangerous down there. And it's why I carry a gun. And he pulls out a gun. <laughs> he pulls out a gun. This is date one. The gun is out, okay? <laughs> And, we're, and so I'm literally like trying to protect Sarah, but I don't even know what, to, I'm just wanting to cower. And so we get there and he drops us off and I'm just feeling like I am so powerless to protect Sarah in any way. I have a t-ball bat, that's it. And so I just, I don't know like what to do in this situation. And, and we get the car back eventually and we're late for our dinner reservation and so we just kind of end up going home and I, I drop her off and I remember driving home and just going, "She never going to want to talk to me again. Like this girl is amazing and great and I just took her through the worst date ever and then the next day, she called me. She <laughs> called me And she wanted to talk and I was blown away, you guys, because in this moment, I was aware of my lack. I was aware of my stupidity. I was aware of how short I had fallen and how amazing I felt like she was. And I was blown away that she would want to spend time with me. You see, sometimes we walk around as Christians very proud. We're like, yeah, Jesus is my homie, right? God's my homie. He's cool with me. He's lucky to hang out with me. And I think Jesus would want to say, bro, like, remember what's actually going on here. Remember that I left heaven with the Father to be on earth with you. Don't forget that. And that just shows you how much I love you and I'm crazy about you. Not only did Jesus tabernacle with us, but number two, Jesus tore the curtain. I love this passage in Mark chapter 15, verse 37. It says, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last on the cross. Verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. That Jesus tore the curtain. I remember, uh, is Jesse here? Where is Jesse? I don't know where Jesse is. One of our pastors, our, uh, our FSM associate, FSM and JHM associate pastor, Jesse. I remember him and I were one time talking about this passage and he made this really interesting comment that I've never forgotten. He said, he said you know, Jesus tore the curtain, but oftentimes we spend our lives trying to sew that thing back up. Come on, Jesse Hunter. We tried to sew, we try to sew that thing back up to create divisions and barriers between us and God, between God and other people. We become so obsessed with our own self righteousness that we try to sew back up the curtain so certain people couldn't have access to God or that he couldn't possibly love that person. You see, in this story, Jesus tore the curtain so that every single person would have direct access to God, as Paul would say just think about this. You have a VIP all access pass to God that you don't need a priest or a pastor or anyone to come before you that because of what Jesus has done, the curtain has been torn. You are welcomed into the holy of holies that you get to talk with the God of the universe and he loves hearing your voice. But the second thing that stood out to me from this passage was that here's a centurion Here's a man who, he's so far from God. He's so far outside of the religious boundaries of that day. And in fact, he's one of the people who's very physically responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And yet when this centurion experiences the power of the cross, his life is changed. Can I ask you a question, friends? Who in your life have you given up praying for? Who who in your life have you said, you know what, there is no hope that my husband or wife is ever going to come to faith in Christ? Who, Who have you said, you know what, there's no way my kids, there's no way my son, my daughter, my brother, my sister, my roommate, my friend, my neighbor, there is no. my coworker, my grandkids, there is no way, like their life is too messed up. They are too far gone. There is no hope. If Jesus can save a centurion, he can certainly save anyone else in your life. And so friends, can I encourage you? Can I encourage you maybe today to begin praying again, to begin praying boldly, that they would encounter the power of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus because it can change anyone and everyone. Number three, Jesus is our perfect high priest. Remember that high priest was the one who would go in on behalf of the other people into the holy of holies. But Jesus is actually our perfect high priest in Hebrews chapter seven, 23 to 26. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. So he permanently is the high priest. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Verse 26, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. See, Jesus is everything that we are not. Jesus is perfect, blameless, holy, set apart, fulfills this role completely and perfectly. But you know what the scriptures say is that if Jesus lives forever, then your salvation, your hope, and you will live forever. That that if Jesus is blameless, that when he deposits that onto you, when he clothes you with his righteousness, that as Paul would say, you become blameless with him. Number four, Jesus is our perfect sacrifice. Verse 27 of Hebrews chapter seven. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Remember, the high priest would come in and sacrifice something else for the people. Jesus being our perfect sacrifice, he sacrifices himself. Jesus did not send a substitute to save you. He sent himself to save you. But friends, I wanna ask you a question. What is it that keeps you saved and forgiven? Think about that for a second. What is it that keeps you saved and forgiven? Because if you've been following Jesus at all, I'd imagine you'd look back on your past and you'd say, man, Jesus forgave and saved me from my past. But unfortunately, one of the traps we fall into as the people of God oftentimes is we believe he has saved us from our past, but we also believe it is our job to manage our sin from here on out. That in fact, as we manage our sin, as we either hide it from people, as we keep secrets, as we engage in things that we know are dishonoring to Christ, but instead of receiving his forgiveness, we try to do a bunch of things to earn it. That as we do that, we weaken the power of the cross. What is it, friends, that keeps you saved and forgiven? Is it your ability to do good works? Or is it the power of the cross? Is it the cross of Christ that you go back to for your past, your present, and your future? That means your sin that you are going to commit tomorrow has been paid for in full by Jesus. He is your perfect sacrifice. This means as Christians, you can live way more free. And you know how you live way more free? You be really honest about your struggles. Because as you confess your struggles and your sin, you are not going to somehow convince God that you are not worth saving because he has already saved you. And so friends, if he truly is our perfect sacrifice, we can walk into our life groups and into our families and into our communities and say, "Hey guys, I'm struggling with porn." "Hey guys, I'm struggling with greed." "Hey guys, I'm struggling with racism." hey guys, I, I, I don't have a handle on my life right now. I've got an addiction that nobody else knows about. And you know why we can do that? Because Jesus has already forgiven us. And if he has already forgiven us, then he will come alongside us and transform us, which is our big and final last idea. Number five, Jesus has completely saved us and is completely transforming us. In Hebrews 10, 14, the author says, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Can I just give a shout out to all of our perfectionists, to our Enneagram ones in the house here, who you just feel like, man, you are constantly so critical of yourself and you're convinced that if you have one day where you don't make any mistakes and nobody else makes mistakes around you, that all of a sudden you will be fully alive. And I think Jesus wants to tell you, look, you are already perfect in my eyes. And not because of good things you're doing, but because of the good thing I have done for you. But then Jesus he makes a commitment to not just save us completely i mean i mean he puts his righteousness on us he puts a new outfit on us he puts new sneakers on our feet i mean we are walking around clothed in christ but then he makes a commitment to perfect and to make holy those he has forever called you see jesus He's not blind to your current struggle. He, he, he doesn't just look at you and go, ah, they're fine on their own. No, he says, I have made you whole. I've saved you, forgiven you completely, and now I am invested for the rest of your life into transforming you into my image. See, this is how intimate and personal our God is. Brian Loritz, uh, a pastor of a multi-ethnic church, In Northern California, he says this, the gospel and religion should never be confused. They are two completely different operating systems. Religion says, I do, therefore I am accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I do. Religious people work for approval. Gospel people work from approval. And the major word that separates the two is grace. Friends, when you know that Jesus has tabernacled with you, when you know that the entire Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, when you have trusted him with your whole life, you become somebody who deeply knows I am accepted, that I am made perfect by Christ, that he has completely saved and forgiven me. And what it causes you to do is radical gospel-centered, unbelievable, unimaginable things. And when you do those things, when you live in light of the gospel, not trying to earn the gospel, but living your life in response to the gospel, people will see that and they will want what you have. In June, on June 17th, 2015, A 21-year-old white supremacist walked into a historically all-black church in Charleston, South Carolina and sat down and participated in a Bible study. And as the Bible study was concluding and every eye closed, he began to shoot everyone there. Nine people died. By Charleston law, within 48 hours of a crime, there's always a bail hearing. And 48 hours later, The victims and the victims' families of this horrific, racist, evil crime. They see this man face to face. And unrehearsed, unplanned, they say something so powerful. They say, we forgive you. It's an unimaginable kind of grace and forgiveness that can only be given because it has been received. There's a documentary that came out. um, Kaylee Richards, one of our young adults here and our leaders in our junior high ministry, she told Sarah and I we had to go see this. And so we went and watched this documentary and we were in a theater. And I remember about halfway through the film, Sarah and I just started bawling and crying as this theater became a sanctuary, as this theater became a holy place where the gospel of Jesus was shared in such a powerful, unimaginable way. I would recommend this movie to anybody. And what we're gonna watch together is just a trailer with with an interview with the director of this film. And I want you to think about, think about what they did. And remember that that is only possible because they first had received his great love for them.